And I'm happy we finally did this, even though it's online. So I apologize for a bad uh, sound recording in advance. But yes, like I'm looking forward for this episode and um, for what I might find about your work. I will just give a brief introduction um, of Katarina and she will tell a bit more uh, about her biography or her work. Um, so yeah, Katarina Petrovic is um, based in uh, Netherlands and Belgrade, if I understood. You split mm-hmm. your time. And yeah, she's an artist and a researcher. So should yeah. I explain already? <laughs> yeah, like first of all, uh, this is something I was, I think, thinking about, like researcher. What do you, what, what, is, isn't it artist already a researcher or if I'm like too naive in this Mm, you know i think an artist is as default a researcher but the moment you go into artistic research or into academic circles to call someone a researcher means something different than simply researching for your works Um, so i think it's only valid to say that you're a researcher if your research has more than an artistic output Right, so that okay. it results not only in the works, but perhaps also in lectures or workshops or an academic paper or um, or a written text. It doesn't need to be an academic paper. So, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I'm happy I deleted my researcher from my biography, to be honest, <laughs> because I felt that in some point it just became some kind of additive, you know, to your biography to sound more serious, you know, and I, I felt a bit like, I'm not sure even what this word means or should mean, and I'm like putting it just to like make my name a bit more richer than I actually believe I am, you know, so it felt a bit weak, but I, I like your, uh, the way you explain makes much more sense. Um, at least to me. So yes, um, Katarina and I first time met in Belgrade a couple of months ago. Uh, we were participating in the same exhibition and staying at the same flat by chance. And uh, that was nice. That's how we met. Yeah. Just by living together. Exactly. (laughs) And I had no clue about her work. Um, I heard her name before but I did not know anything about your work until you actually came in and brought the newspaper with your work that, right. that was part of the exhibition of October, uh, October Salon and um, then I started reading it and then I was okay you deal with language I did not understood in which way at the moment was it a joke was it a humorous way or something um, 
and then you introduced me to the concept of negative poetry, the, your project, and then you just briefly explained what is it about. I had no clue what you said, by the way. Like maybe every third word I, I catched, but I found it, uh, it would be amazingly interesting to use your knowledge and your work to actually uh, speak about it in Broken English podcast. Um, but yes, before we go into it, um, maybe you can just say a bit more about your artistic practice and how come you live now in Netherlands? How, what was your trip from Belgrade to there? And um, yeah. Yeah, that's a long answer. Because <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've been living here for eight years and I had uh, a, quite a different practice in Belgrade. Uh, so uh, my work, the, the negative poetry you mentioned and the language works, they, they all began when I moved to the Netherlands. Um, so I have distinct phases, I think, in my work. Uh, but language uh, has always been with me and um, even since I was a kid. So I could begin there, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Tell me, do you want me to begin with uh, talking about the negative poetry and just introduce a little bit our work and then how all of that? Uh, yes, let's do that. And I will also have a, probably a lot of follow up questions uh, on this as well. Okay, so um, in order to introduce this project, I do need to say a little bit about my practice. Um, so, yeah, uh, I am an artist and a researcher, <laughs> meaning my my research has different outputs. Sometimes uh, that's uh, a lecture, like singular lecture. Sometimes I do a course, um, or uh, I even published an academic paper on the topic of uh, theory of art science. How does art and science? Thank you, thank you. And um, I hope to continue more with uh, academic papers, actually. But I, oh, I do see them really intrinsically connected to the research I do for my artworks. So the way I approach my artistic research, my artistic practice, is um, twofold. I am interested in language from the perspective of uh, language being the the medium with which we access the world. So be it the inner world or the outer world, but language is always uh, a grid through which we see the reality, through which we find meaning. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a language, it's, a, it's language that we use when we're writing down the findings of science, and it's language we use when we are writing descriptions for our works or talking to our audience. And it's, it's just like air. It's always present, but it's very rarely dealt with as a, as a natural force on its own, you know? Yeah. So I, I like to think that in the, in the long run, what I'm doing is I'm developing physics of language. I want to treat language as a as a physical force, as a natural force, and see what it can withstand and what are, it, what are its rules and how it can be used creatively, apart from the practical side of language use. And uh, I, in the same time, uh, my practice is that, experimenting with language as a physical force. But on the other hand, I also experiment with physical phenomena. So 
I like to learn by working with sound or with light. And that informs me about how I should approach language. And when I experiment with language, that uh, informs me on how to approach physical setups. Mm -hmm. So usually in my works, you have um, both. You have something of the physical uh, phenomena, such as radio emissions or uh, sound uh, or light and specific uh, projection setups. And then on the other hand, what can language do uh, if we put it under scrutiny and you could say language experiments or language games. Um, so the negative poetry is such a language experiment and it, um, it, the basic premise is if in, in treating physical reality, but mostly mathematics, we came up with the concept of uh, numbers, natural numbers and negative numbers. So we have, uh, well, actually it's not such a uh, old uh, discovery, so to say, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the discovery of zero. Yeah. And this concept of zero, to me, it's very important in the long run, but I will mention it later. So I took this basic mathematical premise of putting together a positive and a negative and reaching zero. And also you have it in physical uh, phenomena such as the, um, you know, the interfere, the wave interference you know how that looks. So if you have waves which are of the same uh, frequency, yes. On some parts where on some parts they get cancelled or uh, amplified. So so therefore you have this idea of zero actually already present in nature. So in negative poetry, I thought. Could we reach zero through language? Could we apply that same method to language that you say something and treat it as a positive, and then you try to invert that and say it into in it in its negative? Do you reach zero? Can you annihilate meaning? Can you come to this state of no meaning by saying uh, something or everything? Hmm. So if wait, I'm having like a multiple questions, but not of some uh, not being under uh, to not understand you very clearly um, explained everything so for example but you know what you were saying now it's like having the you know negative of a certain type of a text or a, you know for example and we you were just talking also about the amplitudes you know of the let's say waves mm -hmm. and you know they can also have different wavelengths you know yeah were you also playing in a different, or it was always like almost like mirrored text in length or in the, so that you were also like playing? Yeah. So, you, so right away, we have to jump into the very core of the work. You are assuming that there is such a thing as a negative. <laughs> That's one thing I didn't say, but there is no such thing as a negative in language. And so, what are but the parameters? Assumptions there. No, no, no. We definitely have negation. 
in language, right? We have different levels of negation in language. We have words which are very simply binary um, concepts, such as day and night, plus, minus, yes, mm -hmm. no. But then uh, we have maybe. And maybe is also a negation, but it's a different level of negation. And um, the, more, the more words are not... Um, the more the words are descriptive, uh, they're more difficult to negate. So, but what I mean when I say there is no negative is the fact that all language is positive. Even if you negate in language, it is still a positive statement. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can swallow the word back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, even if it speaks about nothing, it's a still a word nothing. And so this is my research I'm, for the past eight years. I'm interested in, in cosmogony, how things come to be. And in order to understand how things come to be, be it any kind of creation of an artwork or the universe, there was some time before it there that was nothing or it's unknown. And how do we ever access this point of origin? How do we come to this zero from which we say, oh, that's a negative value or a positive value? What is this conceptual framework that we hold and through which we see the entire world? We assume that there is an well, origin. We also assume time and space. And, and, you know, but the thing is, you're talking about the language as a medium. And again, you choose to work um, in a couple of projects with text. Mm -hmm because I guess the language not necessarily needs to be textual. In the right, story. yeah. Yeah, so it could have other forms, whether mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. you know, we know that. So what dragged you towards this? And another thing also, like, we can ask these details later. I was just like having, when you were talking about this zero, and I, I just had like, you know, throwback to long time ago, I was obsessed, uh, when I did my work, burning. I was obsessed with the fire. At some point, I wanted to burn everything in my life. And right. I was, but not so much as a fire, I was obsessed with the ashes. And uh, so I put it that ashes, it's something like, not as, I didn't call it as a zero, I call it as a potential. That would be the, you know, like, alienation of something that lost, uh, it lost its um, form form or purpose like for example wheat was exhausted has no more purpose of it so by uh, putting it on fire it becomes like ashes which at that point it's a huge potential to become something or become nothing right know? but ashes or very small particles are uh, in a way if you put them into any kind of motion, be it by wind or vibration, they will exhibit chaotic behavior. They constitute what we understand as this chaos or very unpredictable, unknowable space. So it is a potential and it is, an, in a way, a metaphor for chaos. Yes. You were trying to reach chaos, Mila, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I guess with, because I was really like, uh, and I still, when I read this project, I was like, well, it, it, it was very ambitious. I, and I, I'm trying kind of to come back to it, but not in that maybe way I wanted to present it. 
uh, by burning a lot of stuff. Uh, but anyway, it's very interesting. Um, and I, you know, later I want to ask you, like, when we come more to the, you know, specifications of the project, and maybe we we do some example or read some example, mm -hmm. so that people have sense. Because at the moment we are really just speaking about, um, like, if you if I would be hearing this, I would still become be a bit lost in all this. But you explaining it very clearly, um, so I hope my my listeners will listen twice uh, <laughs> to all yeah. this. And but I have a follow up questions because you said um, your interest in this particular uh, topic about the language came after you moved uh, from Serbia to Netherlands. So um, I don't want to assume the answer. Um, can you tell me a bit more about it? Why it was a surrounding more more exposure to something or just growing up well it was a research proposal i proposed to uh do the research and work with which actually i ended up graduating from uh, art science master program and the idea for the work actually the first work where i use language originated in paris when i was doing an exchange there because I didn't mention, but uh, I have a Master of Fine Arts equivalent diploma because, you know, we had this, uh, how do you call it, uh, e equalization of degrees uh, in after Bologna. So, uh, so I have a, a diploma of a fine arts from Belgrade Academy of Fine Arts. And then um, a few years later, I did another master's at Art Science Interfaculty. And uh, as part of my studies at the Academy of Arts in Belgrade, I did an exchange. Uh, I went to Paris uh, for a semester and there I had this idea. And it came from literally being totally mind wrapped into trying to speak French. And I was learning French for a year and still I was nowhere near, you know, uh, having a full blown conversation in, in French. I would have headaches at the end of the day and I would spend my time uh, in dictionaries all the freaking time. So, but I realized something and something really changed then because language, I, I was always a big reader, you know, I spent my childhood reading books and I always found such comfort in, in language. Um, so I also only started learning French because I had a dream that I was a French writer who received a book. <laughs> um, and, and it felt so real. It was really like, it was my past life. And I woke, I woke up thinking, I just read, uh, you know, the, the, the note in the book that was in French. I read it in French. I spoke French in my dream. I understood it. I woke up and I realized it's complete bollocks that I can't read French. Why can't I read French? And so I decided I'm going to learn French and I want to go to Paris. Uh, and I want to, yeah. Yeah, it's just I, I knew that's what I have to do. So uh, then I was, huh? So you speak French now or no? I do, I do, but it's not great. I speak better French when I'm a bit drunk. And so 
no, actually, I really feel with French, there is some kind of intuitive understanding of that language. And that was the biggest shift that happened in my mind, that all of a sudden this air we breathe became visible to me. This language we speak became just visible to me. Um, because English I don't understand as a language I learned. It's literally, I started speaking English when I started speaking Serbian. I can't even tell you as a kid if I watched cartoons in, in Serbian or English. It's just already, it's, it's there. But with French, I realized that uh, people would speak to me and I don't know, I can't even repeat the word they used, but I know what they said. And I can tell you, and they would be like, do you know what this word means? And I would just be like, I would think like out of I'm speaking out of my ass and I'm right. And so I was that really blew my mind. How did I understand without ever knowing a language? And so um or a specific word. And then I started reading dictionaries and thinking about words and it just became a whole mystery to me and I had to figure out what's going on. And the idea for the work was, what happens if you explain one word uh, with a dictionary, and then you explain every word in that definition with a dictionary, and then you explain every word in those definitions with their definitions, will you end up explaining the entire language? Is in fact the entire language contained in a single word? because every, every word is connected to every other. They're only constituted by other words. There is no alone, there's no one word. They're always a multiplicity. And so that was my proposition for research here at Art Science uh, Masters. And I wanted to see what happens if, if, you, try, if you try this absurd thing of explaining everything, <laughs> what do you get? And um, that's the that's the lexicon liber novus, uh, the book of four thousand pages, in which I'm using the sentence of Jorge Luis Borges uh, from one of the two poems that he originally wrote in English. So I'm not using a translation. He wrote those two poems in English. Those are the only pieces that he wrote in English, and the first sentence that creates the entire book is "We talked, and you have forgotten the words." We talked. And you have forgotten the words. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is first word we uh, gets number one, talked gets number two, and so forth. And then in the, in the explanation of number one word or we, I don't know, another 20 words are used. And so those 20 words become the next numbers. They get defined. Uh, all the words there get defined and so forth. So for this entire book, or for this sentence of eight words, I had to explain 47,144 other words. Wow. <laughs> but the answer is no, you know, not the entire language is contained in a single word because the book has an end. I mean, and it's not all words. And this is to assume that language is complete. Right. And stagnant, I mean. But even so, even if it was, you wouldn't have all the words related. But wasn't it before, like, I, maybe that's now old-fashioned, you know, that it was like, I don't know, for Wu Karadzic, uh, he was like, oh, this language has this amount of words, and that's it, period. Yeah. 
Is well, this I still mean, valid, kind of? In every language, you have, like, how many words they have. Yeah, you have it. You have it all, all of course. But it's changing. It's all the time changing. You could do a counter. <laughs> you know, like, the counter for how many people are living on the earth is quite depressing, you know? This fast-moving <laughs> upwards. You would have the same for language. Because, actually, it's very rare that words get extinct. They just get added. The only place that I have ever heard where there are extinct words is Dutch. Every few years, they ha- the Dutch uh, Institute, I don't know exactly which institute, but they have a spe- special center that is concerned with Dutch language dictionary. They take words out of the dictionary. They make them extinct if they have not been used in media for a few years for at least four years if that four years yeah they con- yeah they continuously monitor the usage of words right so yeah there is a really wonderful wonder- wonderful word by uh Vibeke Mancini if i remember her last name well she made an artwork where she tried to bring back a word into the dictionary and she started paying ads is in magazines so that that word would be printed and it got back into the dictionary. So she saved the word. Weird stuff. <laughs> this is really insane. I mean, uh, but also like to have, a, I guess you meaning like, you know, in Netherlands, they have this like concept of extinct word. I mean, there are languages that are, you know, almost to extinct, you know, because there is no more people who would speak them. At least this is sometimes something I heard when I was in New York, you know, like that um, in Queens, there's like the, yeah, I don't know, the, the amount of languages spoken in Queens, you know, you can compare it to, I don't know uh, how many, and maybe there is sometimes just one person who still speaks the, their native language or something like that. I cannot confirm this because I overheard it again from someone. Uh, but yes, like, I mean, to have it like modern and four years, it's nothing. I, I'm now not heard some, you know, it's, it's very insane, but it's funny. It's a good, it could be art, good art projects, as you said, one now. It's, it's at least gives us some work to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but okay. And um, with this project proposal, you came to your master's degree too. Yeah, and I spent uh, two years of my master's uh, researching um, that uh, idea, but language in general. And uh, I wrote my master's thesis, uh, which is called On Cosmogony. And there I really lay out the basis for my practice since then. Actually, I'm thinking now in preparation for our talk, I was like, I should reread my thesis. You know, I wrote everything there. That was terrible also. It was such uh, such hard time to write that thesis because I'm dealing with some concepts which really escape words. And I'm dealing with the idea that some wor- some things cannot be put in language, you know, things that really bug us or... Uh, or the, then by the end of writing my thesis, I thought, I started thinking by thinking that 
not everything can be put in language. This book of lexicon was supposed to make fun of it, you know, like, here you go, explanation of all the words. Did you learn anything? No, and you can't even read it. And the book is 15 kilos. You can't even hold the book, you know? Yeah. I, I, it, it's an absurd thing, and I really wanted it to be absurd. But, but by the end of it, by the end of two years of my research, I came to understand just how mm, crucial poetry is and how much things can be said in language. But they're not said only in words. They're said also in between the words and in between the lines. Yes. And that kind of reasoning takes, um, you need to be, you need to be reading a lot to be able to, to understand, to, to, to build this intuitive understanding within yes. language. This is what I just wanted to say, like exactly what you said, also the reasoning, but what happens, and this is why I think it's me reading the same word and you reading the same word would create probably different understanding in our heads. Even like coming from the same background, same language, same culture, reading the same word that we are maybe familiar with, it's like this, the energy that happens from me reading with all my background experience that influences, it creates completely another, you know, volcano of, of imagination and thoughts and understanding of it, I guess. Yeah, and that's so beautiful. And when you are writing and when you are dealing with language, you know just how much of it is left to chance. Exactly, yeah. You are trying to be as precise while counting on imprecision, in uncertainty. And this is why I think that when I was writing this academic paper, that was also an, in part um, an artistic research, I wanted to write this academic paper so that you get clues on how to, re on how to understand something that you don't expect just as if any academic paper that everything is going to be spelled out and that's how it's that's how it's written that's how it is you should be be you should be an active contributor to the text as you read but you can't do that really in academic paper so yeah i do result then mostly to writing uh yeah maybe we would call it creative writing but I think that for me, the one of the other ends of um, research papers or academic papers are is actually poetry, you know? While academic paper research is like, as you said, the way I wrote you, um, I rely that most of the people who will read this will read in exact way I want them to read, you know? While, and it's very dry, but while the other side, the poetry, it's it's very juicy, you know? And um, even translating poetry, we were speaking a couple of the podcasts, it's like, you know, you write the whole new poem by translating it to another language. So to appropriating it to a different languages. So it, that's, that's very interesting uh, materia to work with. And um, yeah, what I wanted to add on this... Um, uh, I had a question. So you said you like to read a lot and you came from that background, but um, how come you, like, I mean, you, you chose 
a lot of a lot of like in poetry, you know, like why why poetry? I mean, I I cannot assume, but maybe there is some other reason. Sorry, I didn't get that. What is the question? Like why you were always uh-huh. why poetry? Yes, why poetry? Like why to go or to call it or to compare it or to uh, yeah dig into that like yeah. Well. Um... I think I would maybe have to talk about the other work that also was my uh, part of my ma- graduation from the masters. Uh, and that's where I use the dictionary as a, this is the first, so the project I'm gonna tell now is the first project in which I make poetry. Um, but I, I write the software that writes the poetry, and that this is how I do poetry. It's all uh, based on rules. And you write the rules. I write the rules. <laughs> uh, right. So, um, so the second work uh, is Jupiter uh, poetry or Cosmologicus, and there. I am using the lexicon, the big book that I just mentioned. I use it as a database of words and numbers because every word gets a number, gets explained. That means that I ended up with the index of uh, 47,152 words. Um, and and so uh, on the other hand, I was interested in phys- physical phenomena uh, and yet another dream, but uh, I had a dream that you could hear Jupiter on Earth, that I dreamt that I was in my uh, in niche in my hometown. I left my parents' building, and on the sky, I could see Sun and Jupiter, and Jupiter was huge. And in my dream, uh, you could hear it as if its, its emissions are in our atmosphere. Like it's so close. And at that time, we were doing a course with European Space Agency. So the next day, I had a course at the European Space Agency. And I'm sitting there with um, with one astronomer and Evelina Domnich and Dimitri Gelfand, who are leading the course, artists. And I tell them about this dream. And Dimitri says, but Katerina, you don't know. Jupiter is audible on Earth. And I was like, what? <laughs> And that's how a new work began for me. Um, actually, Jupiter is acting like a pulsar, like a star. It's emitting on broad frequencies. And next to the sun, it's the only other uh, um, astronomical uh, how is object that you can hear uh, with regular radio on ground. And I spent that summer building the antenna to listen to Jupiter. And it's the same kind of an antenna that you listen to cosmic noise. And it's a pilot outreach project of NASA. So anybody can buy uh, parts to build this antenna. And it's a really big one because uh, the frequency you are listening to has a wavelength of 12 meters. So your antenna has to be half of that so that you get a good signal. So it was six by seven meters (laughs) array that I was setting up. And uh, I joined the community of radio astronomers who are listening to Jupiter worldwide. And 
this was really great. I, I love those months. And um, what did you hear? I'm curious. What did you hear? What's the noise? Do you want me to play it? Yes, please. I think everyone. <laughs> we don't have these antennas. Yeah, no. But you can listen to even. Somewhere, no. Uh, yes, yes. And people have fetish for, for sure on this. <laughs> Here, I will play it before I say anything uh, about it. That's that's Jupiter, my dear listeners. Yeah. yeah well, um, it's very it's noise. It's it's noise. It's only that at some points uh, you have higher amplitude and you have a bit more noise than less noise. I mean, to me, it sounds like you're listening to the sea, no? And you can really imagine that what happens physically, the antenna is basically picking up the passage. Uh, or the movement of electrons in a copper wire. That's so simple. And if you would put, you know, like if you have an old stereo, stereo, stereo uh, in your house, uh, if you put a simple copper wire onto an antenna plug on the back of it, you're going to listen to, I mean, a lot probably. And you will be, that, that's all you need for an antenna. You just need a little bit of wire. And so, you can think of it, there's electrons all the time, but this uh, electromagnetic radiation that comes moves them in a specific way uh, and adds to them if they're uh, ionized, but usually that's sun. Sun totally blows out uh, in terms of uh, the strength of the signal. So Jupiter is very low and you hear this noise, basic noise, and then you hear a little bit of, uh, of incoming signal. So indeed, it is a sea of electromagnetic radiation. And then at some point, you hear a little bit of Jupiter. So uh, yeah, this was all very fascinating to me. And I thought, can, I thought first, I didn't really know what I was gonna, where this work is gonna go. But thinking about, again, how do we explain such physical phenomena, be it in science or just, or even in mythology, um, or in any other way, we always try to make sense of it. Our modernist brain is just, I mean, it became so clear to me that what we do every moment we are awake, and even when we are asleep, is we are looking for meaning. We're creating meaning, we're meaning machines, we want meaning, we, we think that the movement of the birds on the, on the sky can mean something to us, that um, the way the wind blows also means something, the way somebody looks at you also means something. It's, and so I thought, okay, what does, what does this Jupiter noise mean? <laughs> and I literally connected the, the the, the index from the lexicon book, the words and numbers to the numbers uh, that I get by sampling the audio recording. 
So uh, this um, this specific algorithm is um, it's not so much translation uh because of the very process that happens but indeed it is a translation from an electromagnetic or or radio signal to words and you get <laughs> and and i uh, you get poetry that makes no sense so um because of course it's not dependent on grammar yes <laughs> and it's not dependent on uh or on concepts or sense it's just consequential uh, knees. How do you say that? Um, it's a flow of words. Just like this is the sea of electrons, this is also a flow. And there is no sort of of repetition that you could notice or? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. This also depends on the rules I set up. My rules, I've changed the uh, this algorithm once. And there is this very... Okay, this podcast is about language. I can go a little deeper. I'm already, I know. I, the things I'm interested in, I know are mind-twisting things, but here's a little bit more. Um, so what happened in the book is um, I was interested, so I'm talking about the lexicon. When you try to explain the first words, every other word that follows, uh -huh. I thought... How can we analyze this process? What actually happens there? And I made a series of diagrams and I first first figured out that the result of this book is you get words that have been numbered, so they repeat, and then you get new words. So you can, you can uh, um, in this process of generating the lexicon, you can divide it into new words and old words. And then I thought, um, okay, uh, wait, now, ah, yeah, so I, I was thinking at one point, uh, does the income of new words slow down? And then you have less and less of new words, and in the end, the software loops. But in all of this, I realized that the process is not acting as I would expect. Uh, actually, the new words slow down quite fast. And uh, I can show you here, just right next to my computer, I'm looking at the diagram. It really looks like a rocket. It begins with the first word, and then it expands quite fast, hmm. and then it stabilizes. And I realized that actually there is a law, there is a physical law that applies to this algorithm and language, and that's Zipf's law. And it's basically, the, the premise is that 20% of the words are used 80% of the time. Mm, okay. So, I mean, it makes sense, no? I mean, now when you explain. Yeah, there, there, there are so many words that are used so frequently, like and, I, you, uh, you know, all of, all of these that they constitute only the 20%. Um, and if I remember correctly, like what you need to speak a language minimally is 6,000 words to 18,000, uh, which would be super expanded. Mm. But English language has 2 million words. 
So in effect, we use less than 10% when we speak English, especially when we speak broken English. We yeah. use less than 10% of all yeah. available words. So that meant, in terms of the book, that those words that are most frequently used, they're in the beginning. So they've, they formed this spike of new words. Yeah. But do you think that, uh, like... For example, you said now about broken English and then we speak maybe less than 10% or something and, uh, you know, to, to not even think of the grammar and syntax and so on, just the, the words as words, you know? And if I would just put like some words next to each other, they are grammarly not proper, but you will understand me. And sometimes I'm wondering, would this understanding or like if I'm speaking to you as someone who speaks broken English to someone who speaks, speaks broken English or English as a second tongue or so on, create more of this um, imaginary understanding rather than like, you know, this dry understanding. Yes, yes, this is what you wanted to say. But sometimes I feel like me imagining what you wanted to say or like, 80%, 70% I do, but 30% I, it's pre-interpretation, which creates a bit more of the, sometimes I feel, at least for the humor, I feel this is good. This is what I was telling in some episodes uh, when I use uh, my broken English to create a joke. It happened, especially with the public in Berlin, where the English is the... Um, Consumers are mostly people who speak English as a second language or third or fourth. And um, when we have a performance who speaks perfect, eloquent English, and then they come with like words just slaughtering around. I have no fucking clue what they wanted to say. Like, I don't understand this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer, uh, yeah, of course. You would prefer to use broken English because it's more approachable, right? And in, in sense of public speaking. We also see in the arts all the time this idea that we have to write down our descriptions for works or exhibitions as simple as possible to avoid the art speak and so forth. Of course. But the first the first question you had is it doesn't it open the space for imagination more and does it isn't it better that is so vague or that some that some parts of it are left uh un, unaddressed even uh but my first thought there is that mila you must be a romantic no actually i i take back what i said it could work just first couple of hours I think if we apply this for a month, we would become insanely stupid. Yeah. It will, it will, be, it will like moving from the city to village. I'm not saying this in a bad way, but in this romantic way, thinking that living in the village is so easy. I think you spoke about it in Belgrade, but a lot of people here, movements, uh, vegan uh, movements, thinking of uh, you know, living in the city all the time, but thinking of village something romantic, but it's not. And um, but yeah, I think um, it was a nice thing to discuss. But I think it would be um, very poorly. Our brain would actually just shrink. I feel. But uh, I just have a question. When you created this lexicon of how how fifteen kilos and uh, how many words, and you said you couldn't explain, of course, all the words with with everything. When did you decide to stop? 
Uh, yeah, I didn't stop. Everything was explained. There was oh. no new word. So yeah. you use the... Which language were you using? English, and I use the Oxford English oh, yes. Dictionary that is on Mac computers. So also uh, that limited the scope of definitions, right? Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, but I feel like I haven't finished talking about it. So yeah, what I wanted to say is I, I started speaking how I changed the algorithm for Jupiter poetry uh, once. And I changed it because I realized, uh, are you there? I don't see you at the moment. Yes. Um, yeah, I changed it because I realized that the first algorithm that the uh, ha that I had was sampling the audio to get values of the numbers. So I'm actually listening to five thousand frequencies, um, and there there is a, a, a maximum amplitude of that signal. So I used the amplitude of that signal, which was uh, I don't remember, maybe eighteen thousand and I scale it to the total amount of words. So every amplitude value I get, it has a corresponding word. So that means I can zoom in, in a way. And so I have to sample. I have to, like, every second I take a value, and that will be a word. I take another value, that's another word. And so it goes. And in my first algorithm, what happened was that uh, the words were all over the place. And because it's noise, like we heard, Jupiter is noise, all the all the amounts, all the values were high, which meant that I'm missing those 20% of the words that are often used, which are in the beginning of the dictionary. They're the low numbers. So the text that was generated was just an assembly of very not commonly used words. So it it didn't allow for any kind of sense to arise because you're missing and you're missing the, you're missing I um and so forth so i changed the algorithm so that the sampling that i zoom in on that signal so that i sing that i sample on microseconds and i also made it uh so that it's variable it's not continue uh, it's not uh, in exact same times but it changes depending on the on the signal strength so the more jupiter is uh, higher the more I'm sampling at that moment. And then when it goes down, I sample slower. And you see that in the installation, you see that the poems are generated when the thing is installed. And you can see how the words are matching the sound that you're listening. And that generated poetry is recorded and also projected in a black cube. And from that work, I um, I collected because I exhibited it quite a, quite a bit, and that forms the body of the of the published poetry that I self published, of uh, sixteen thousand poems. And I have some books here in my studio, so not all of them. Half of them are in Belgrade still. But, um, for instance, I could read. Um, um, a little bit. Yeah, but this is one of them, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm holding the book number 19. There's 32 books. Um, and, okay. Talk is enthusiasm shower. He's participle. Churchill, drop smithereens. Direction cursor, corny. 
belonging drank when letter talked nose, dead addressed, couldn't dare you place plural. The first sentence was quite uh, poetic. Sometimes you get something nice, yeah. Reference projection, everyone. Series, community exists. Receiving strata, remembering, going water costs. So um, yeah, that's what Jupiter has been telling us on the 16th of June, 2018 at 1548. Oh. Yeah. So you had okay. many questions, and I feel like we keep opening things, but we don't. Um... This is great. We don't uh, like this. Is like I prepare a couple of questions, and then we are exactly opening things because uh, one thing leads to another. Um, but we now you started from first, and then you came to the Jupiter. I don't know what yeah. we were. Actually, now I remember what was the question that I was also trying to answer, which was why poetry and how did you start poetry? So I thought, uh, now I told you about this first work um, where I am uh, doing poetry. Um, but you're actually code, you're code. So is it like coding is a way, it's poetry then? Is the code a poetry? Could you publish it like that? Yeah, of course. I mean, why not? It's just uh, computer-aided uh, poetry. No, you had po practices like this, rule-based, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. A lot of the avant-garde and surrealist movements had some style of literary works that were based on rules. And, um, and of course, you also had senseless literature, which in French is l'écriture blanche, the white poetry, and it's basically writing in specific ways to avoid making meaning because, and this is really nice, when I was doing Mangulus uh, residency in New York, I went to Wendy's Subway. They, uh, it's a really nice spot in uh, Brooklyn, if they didn't move, and they had, uh... <laughs> oh, now I remembered another dream. They had a workshop on, uh, yeah, I can't remember now what was the name, but it was basically how to kill meaning. And it's a serious act, you know? It's very difficult to try to make no sense at all. And, um, and this is what artists in the 20th century were seriously considering. How can you be senseless? And, uh, and in our present age, I think this is such an important question because we are... Our lives are so mediated by technology and code that we have this idea that things can be captured, literally captured, and uh, yeah, made into data that means something, that it will inform you of something. But in effect, it's just a very, how do you say, um, it's a default state, you know? Uh, it's, very, it's a very easy way out. There's so much that uh, lays beyond. And so in order to access this beyond, we have to also try to access it in us. How can we see and think the world outside of this uh, meaning machine that is always on? And uh, yeah, this is where I see a little 
a little bit of value in the work I do. It's, it, it, it asks you to try to do it. When you read this Jupiter poetry, you have to uh, l let go. Yes, I really like the, the terms you, like meaning machine, really. And I thought like, what would for me create like some sort of repetition and repetition if it's like in a shorter um, tact creates for me more, less meaning, you know, after mm -hmm. a certain time. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, then it's day to day and then like, feels like my whole life is meaningless. <laughs> then you just become fucking depressed, you know? But um, I think uh, seeking meaning, it's a, some way of, uh, yeah, therapy. Otherwise, you could just, as, and as more deep you go, to more details you find or want to find meaning or conspiracy theories or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I also think it's a road to um, insanity. Yes, it's a, exactly, it's a road to, but I think both ways are, uh, or it's insanity or what would be the negative of it in, a, in another way, if you go, you know, like insanity of, um, or, or to try to do, to find meaningless way of life or senseless, or to go to the um, every core of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in any case, both are impossible. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wanted to say about poetry. I just like this senselessness, or trying to be without meaning, or to even understand what can that can be. I also think that poetry as a form is beautiful, and mostly because uh, it's it relies on poiesis of coming into being and coming into being of something that didn't exist before. So you, there is poiesis in physical systems and likewise in language. And the, the poetry form has something really beautiful that, uh, that, that happens, which doesn't happen in, um, in um, literary text or just a normal text, and, that, and that's rhythm. Because the the form of poetry has something of yeah of, of already determined shape that also determines how you read. This is of course not exclusive. You could have it in literary texts, but um, in poetry, there are so many levels through which you can understand. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just think that and. Yeah, some, somewhere in the beginning, you asked me if um, of other forms of language, and I think now I, I began with this dictionary, then I moved into poetry form. Now I'm doing the negative poetry, but in the next project that I already see for the next years for me, I will be relying on actual physical processes to be writing um, letters and words. So, and uh, so not uh, not already assembled uh, language as such, but the making of language I'm very interested. And this making of language, I hope to achieve by uh, analyzing um, states in quantum computers. What? <laughs> this, I want to analyze 
the states of qubits in a quantum computer. It's basically a quantum system, an entangled quantum system with, uh, let's say, five particles. And you can, uh, you can provide it with an equation and, or a network problem that it needs to solve, and it will give you different kinds of relations between these states. They will entangle in a specific way. And I want to translate those particle entanglements into letters so that the movement of these particles will be creating language. Well, you already have yourself a PhD there. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Oh. But it's all very absurd. Why would anybody <laughs> need any kind of research Why like not? This? Exactly. That's PhD. I think that you can ask about any PhD this question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I thought PhDs were actually what uh, the world needs, no? <laughs> but this is where the, you penetrate the border of common of, of current knowledge. So one could ask, why do we need it? Well, to expand this knowledge. So someone might pick up your book and say, wow, this is exactly what I wanted to know. You I, know? I find it so unlikely, but I really appreciate your attitude and I think you might be right. Yeah, if you found your way, towards this through your dream about French, <laughs> French language, of course, I, I assume it's someone that there, you can, it cannot be a case that you might be a singular one. But um, let, are we are now, did we came now to our project, uh, Negative Poetry? Yeah. And uh, I think maybe would be, the best to uh, if we can read like a short paragraph um, if you have some example of positive okay. and negative and uh, in English and maybe I can read the positive you negative or uh, you can read the, the negative and I read positive just like maybe two sentences or three five I don't know just so uh, everyone can get the sense Mm -hmm. what we're talking about and while you're searching for it um, I know when uh, when you brought me the newspapers without any introduction and said like here this is uh, my work tell me what you think about it and I start reading it and I, I don't know why but I just like by feeling repulsed by um, unusual way of reading it of how it's written that just in like mid of the text I immediately started to revert the word by myself I was like let me just try to fix this <laughs> and I wanted to revert to see if I was on a right track that I understood that there, because of course I assume there is some kind of trick in the text because it's an art piece and it's in the you know it's part of the exhibition so it's not just common text written by a curator and uh, so I, I kind of intuitively started to correct it or what I thought it's a correction. It doesn't need to be corrected, of course. But um, And then you said, yeah, I mean, I had no clue that it was actually negative. And uh, also what I was curious, how these words were chosen as negative exactly, like um, by which dictionary or... Um, you know, because it's for if, if there is a word negative and you would assume that negative or negative is a positive, but actually it's not. So, you know, I wanted to, you know, discuss that. Right. Yeah. So the way that the algorithm works, uh, by the way, 
the software was written by Milos Grujic, who is a yeah, software developer. So we worked together and we developed a system where we're using Oxford English Dictionary, but a full one. And I managed to get the researcher access, which is great. I mean, they don't allow many people access to full dictionaries. Really bizarre. Most time it's, yeah, it's paid and it costs a lot. Uh, because you can make a lot of money. I mean, there is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of money in digital text and language. Um, but anyways, we're using Oxford English Dictionary and word antonyms and word synonyms. So it's very basic. Every word in a text uh, gets looked up and then we look up for the antonym. And if there is no antonym, then we look for synonyms and then their antonyms. And if, again, there is no antonyms, we look for synonyms of synonyms and their antonyms. So it goes three levels deep. And in the end, most of the time, uh, you get multiple possibilities, what can be the negative. And then we choose it random. Um, with, uh, with that, of course, the system is not perfect. Most of the time, you actually don't get a negative sense, you just, uh, some, sometimes you get exactly the same because you negated every word. Mm -hmm. um, so because of this, um, the, 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 you can see it online on negativepoetry.com and that was presented as part of my Mangalos Award uh, in an online exhibition in 2020. And the idea was to present my research where it was at that point. So I presented that first algorithm, that first draft as a machine negation and then I also had human negation where I worked with uh, eight other people uh, and we did a performance where we are negating poetry. And it's very fun with uh, working with people and trying to negate. And it's, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And now combining what I learned from those human uh, algorithms and machine algorithms, I'm working on a new version. And for this new version, we will be actually using machine learning or AI so that, uh, yeah, so that we can get better at negatively translating. But the question, how, what is the negative of a word or how you choose it? If we, if we don't think about this simple machine algorithm in general, how do you, Mila, choose what is a negative of a word, let's say, sweater? Uh well, I would probably choose it based on my um, experience of wearing it. Uh, for example, sweater, then by association, probably sweater by cold, winter, and then what is the opposite of all these circumstances for the sweater would be something in the summer, T-shirt, for example. Okay. Right. You explain it also quite well. You have to choose one aspect of the thing that you uh, are based on which you're going to negate. And you said the experience of wearing it. And so when do you wear it? Um, and that's precisely what trying to negate is. You take one particular aspect of that word or that thing and you try to negate it. Sometimes, well, most of the times, Actually, maybe even all of the times, that's quite difficult. Um, 
And especially if you're trying to work with an entire sentence, and especially if you're trying to work with an entire poem. And um, you find out that in order to negate something which is said in the, be in the very best way you can means that you have to be very creative. You, you really <laughs> should let go and try to pick up from your mind the things that come first and then try to build on that. And you, it's really a creative act and machines are not very good at that. So the, now the second algorithm that I'm trying to make, which for which I got the, the grant of uh, the um, national government of the Netherlands actually to make the new uh, software for negation, which I think is amazing. And it's the, the biggest grant I've ever got. Congratulations on that, I saw that. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's great, but then also, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work. So it's very difficult to, to make an algorithm where actually the machine will be creative or at least appear creative. And we are trying to build this new software which will be able to map the relationships between words and concepts so that... Uh, the machine also understands this vector, you know, because when I say sweater, um, you can imagine the sweater, the word, as a node, as one point from which you have infinite possibilities of connection. It's like a sphere. It's, it's an infinite surface in a way. So sweater can be understood in so many ways. Mm. And so the more you populate the words and concepts and their relationship into a machine, the more of these vectors it will have available. So it will say, oh, sweater connects to winter, sweater connects to clothing, sweater connects to um, human, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so we want to build this vector space uh, for words, and yeah, and then try to find a way to negate in, in this hyper-dimensional hyper space. This is what we do, you know, day in, day out, but for machines, it's very difficult. So, um, so yeah, for uh, October Salon, the, the text you were reading in the newspaper and that I think we can read now, I sent you the link, it's also online. Uh, I have it in Serbian and in English, so we can read in English and you can see here, I used the first version of the software, of course, and I edited it. Um, I took my author liberty to change the machine output. Okay, so um, English. Yeah. Okay, so um, I can start with a um, positive mm -hmm. and uh, I can read, um, well, whatever this paragraph is, that it's one sentence, obviously, the first one. Um, and then you can read the negative, or if you want some other part, do you feel more suitable? Mm. No, no, I think it's cool. We begin with the first part. Okay. So I'm going to read. <clears throat> okay. Um, October Salon. Artistic life in Belgrade is becoming more and more lively and dynamic, and at the pace of such development, our fine art is gaining more and more recognition and praise in the country and abroad. And yet, so far in our republic, there, is not, there has not been a single event 
where the best, best results of our painters, graphic artists, and sculptors could be seen every year. Mm -hmm. So this is a positive version of what Katarina now is going to read as a negative. Right. So the, the text you just read is the, the, the text with which the October Salon was constituted and began in 1960, right? So here's the negative. Unimaginative death in Belgrade is becoming more and more difficult and lethargic. And it's at a stride of such decline, our ill art is gaining less and less attention and is condemned outside the city and abroad. No longer in our Republic is there a single manifestation where the worst results of our painters, softened artists and sculptors could be recorded every year. Softened artists. <laughs> yeah. So funny, there it is. The softened artist is which? Graphic. Graphic Gra artist. Graphic softened, okay. Yeah, and fine arts is ill arts. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> That's good, that's good. But artistic life, I love it. Artistic life in Belgrade is translated as inimaginative death in Belgrade. <laughs> also quite, I mean, it's, it's in humorous way, it's truth, you know, it's poetic truth. And I found it so astonishing, really, that this negative text seems more real <laughs> than this opening quite text. Unfiltered truth that you know it's not you know defined uh, by some words that you know we you know like what this person wanted to say or you know this is how it is you know i feel like you just peel the layer and uh, this is actually how it is um very interesting yeah like um, we're living the negative time of you know after post second world war world Yes, but we want to see it as a as a positive, which is illusion. Exactly. Yeah. So actually, what you're doing, you're uncovering reality, which seems very depressing, Katarina. So maybe stop. <laughs> you're going into that's abyss. The, but that's uh -huh. the only way to heal, you know. Yeah. We gotta face um, what's there. I also I also like how uh, the. Council for the Culture of the City is uh, the local yes. authority for the arts of the of a countryside. <laughs> yes, I yeah, this was was uh, uh, the positive is bearing all this in mind on the initiative of the council council for the arts for the culture of the city and fine artists of Serbia. The People's Committee of the City of Belgrade founded the October Salon at the Modern Gallery in Belgrade, and then and the this, and then this translates into feeling all this in the body. The unimaginative local authority for the arts of a countryside, and ill artists of Serbia, a People's <laughs> Committee of a countryside of Belgrade liquidated the overtime boycott, which is the negative October Salon at the old slaughterhouse in Belgrade. So modern, modern gallery is old slaughterhouse. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this is something to be honest, I, I saw of as an art piece since a very long time. I mean, not just this text, but the general concepts. 
and uh, it may brings me such joy <laughs> it brings me such joy in discovering this and i think also what brings me joy in reading you know especially comparing this to I, I have suddenly energy to read two texts barely i have energy to read one <laughs> And it's it's really joyful, you know, to compare to see what this material. No, but I really think this text would um, that our listeners would appreciate that we continue because uh, in the last in the paragraph after, what happens is also. Okay, I will read. Uh, you mean this uh, October Salon as an artistic manifestation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the October Salon as an artistic manifestation also marks a significant historical date from the heroic struggle of our people, the anniversary of the liberation of our capital. It will enrich the cultural life of Belgrade and provide an opportunity for our public to get an ac acquainted with the best achievements of our fine art and thus gain a clearer and more transparent picture of its movements and values. Okay. The overtime boycott, as an unimaginative manifestation, also marks meaningless contemporary decline from a cowardly surrender of our human beings. A commemoration of slavery in our capital. It has a tendency to spoil a race-related death of Belgrade and withhold an intention for our public to leave unfamiliar grounds of the worst failures of our ill art, and as a result, lose the clearer or less secretive print of its movements or values. The October Salon will contribute to the artistic education of our people and greatly stimulate the creation of the artists themselves by showing the valuable achievements of our fine artists, regardless of which generation and schools they belong to, the October Salon will also enable comparisons, more meaningful analyses, analyses and more specific conclusions. The overtime boycott has a tendency to stand in the way of an unimaginative ignorance of our human beings and not at all to discourage a removal of artists themselves. Through the agency of awarding cheap achievements of our ill artists, regarding which generations or schools they belong to, the overtime boycott has a tendency to forbid comparisons, lessen meaningless analysis, and diminish vague conclusions. I just want okay. to, okay, so maybe, like, for example, what I noticed, I mean, um, as you said, it also sometimes translates the meanings to negative, not just necessarily word by word. Like deconstructing, deconstructing sometimes the whole sentence by word, every word of the sentence to negative might create even, or it was done by that. Because, for example, here there is this sentence um, about generations, very, very, some, just a second. Uh -huh. regarding the, the positive is regardless of which generations and schools they belong to, but the negative is regarding. So regardless and regarding, but everything else, it stayed the same. So it's just the meaning of the whole sentence it's put to the negative. Yeah, the, um, 
I, I did uh, have to edit the text, but uh, in this case, there's another thing. If, the, if no antonym is produced through this three-level antonym synonym uh, search, then the word is repeated. And indeed, when I tried to translate some of these things, uh, generation did not have an antonym. So it only gets copied on, on the other, you know, it gets copied into negative. How do you mean? Like, no, I was, for example, this uh, regardless of which generations, but then here is just regarding which generations. Yeah, maybe I've changed that, but we can also test. I think now is a good moment. Um, we can translate anything. I have an interactive version. So here I send you the link. So we can type any sentence and see what this algorithm will uh, generate. Can I publish this uh, link in the podcast? Not the interactive one. Okay. <laughs> it's VIP okay. access only. Okay, good, just so I know. Uh, for example, I can type something. I wrote broken English podcast. It translates to smooth English podcast. Smooth. Smooth. Okay. Um, for example. So, so you see, English doesn't have a, a antonym. Yeah. Oh, I got perfect English podcast. So if you keep uh, pressing translate, it will give you other options. Aha. Uh -huh, okay. Unbroken. Whole. Flat. Flat English. Interesting. Uninterrupted English. Hmm. Broken. Yeah, I get that uh, it goes by the synonym. Or working English podcast. Kept English podcast. <laughs> that one, the one that works. Yeah. Broke. Yes. What else we could? Obey English podcast. Oh my God, there are so many antonyms for broken. So um, we now tried a bit negative poetry, and I have now a better understanding of it. Um, and uh, you already said something about your next project, and I see you really have endurance to work with this. I even wanted to like uh, say this when you were saying about your master's degree and having this kind of idea by struggling of learning another language and this kind of um, epiphany or something like, you know, I, I, some people know this bliss of getting the idea and then having so much energy to do it. But, you know, in many terms, when you get like great idea, you think it's great, but tomorrow you wake up, it's shit, you know? And, uh, or after a month or after 10 months, it can just like the energy of it, itself it just kind of starts to evaporate this is what i'm always scared of and i always kind of try to um scale as long as it holds me i feel it's better as longer it's holding me means it's as much better you know um, yeah. like reciprocity so that you really had such a um you know, power through through the whole thing for the two years and write about it and uh, then continue and then just discover this whole new world. It's really insane to me. And you are not tired of it, I see. 
No, no. But I have so much to say about this. Um, I don't know if it's power. Perhaps I'm more of a, not a slave, but I, you know, I, I don't have power over this idea that arises in my mind. First of all, I have no power on the idea to arise in my mind in the beginning, you know? They just appear out of <laughs> nowhere. And then um, I don't try to keep them. So they they just stay, they take hold of me. So I'm working for the idea and... But not necessarily you need to pursue them. Like if you don't, if you have them, I mean, you on a daily basis, you have ideas. You have idea to go to toilet, but you don't. Or you, or okay, you and then I have to say, okay, yeah, I am a little bit uh, obsessive. I don't let go so easy, you know, because uh, it's not that I believe in the idea so much. It's just that I'm so curious. And unless I find out, I won't uh, let it go. So, and then what happens is that I try out something like this negative poetry. I had the idea for this in 2017. It took me three years before I started actually working with it. And now I am um, now... So now it's five years in, I'm building the second version and I'm going to spend probably another year or two also working with that. It takes a long time, but uh, it, the fact is that I started with something very simple. I took a pen and paper and I tried to translate a Buddhist poem into its negative. And that was a great evening, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, and then I, it just got me curious. And then I write this algorithm and that gets me curious even more. And then I work with people and they also uh, come up with ideas. Uh, one of the poets in the group, she had an idea of uh, trying to negate images. And so we did an experiment where she would give us images and we would have to generate negative of those images. And it just keeps opening up, you know? The, you, all it takes is that you just give it uh, respect, that you give respect to this idea that you have, you try it out just a little bit. You don't need to do so much and it will already give you so, so much more. And yeah, this is how it goes with me. And in general, I think another thing is that I work quite slow, you know, it takes me years uh, to develop work and, and, the, and the topics of my interest are also so complex, even for me at times, that, um, yeah, it, it takes me a long time. And I think um, we should also, as artists, um, try to um, hold our grounds, even if our work takes years, because we live in a system that wants us to produce works very fast. Very fast. And some things that are really worth exploring takes, take much more time. And, and so this is where I find my uh, stamina. Mm. I also, you know, I'm very co conscious of the fact that I don't produce new artworks every year. But uh, me as well. And then it comes like, as I said before, you know, some idea that I, ideas that I nurture for a long time and then do it by bit by bit. And then there are some that just come very explosive. 
um, and I, I do them like as, as a must before everything else I started before in like in terms of two, three months, which seems quite fast and then continue with that. And it's like, then you see around you, like everyone is printing, publishing, uh, hanging, exhibiting. And, and I think I'm, and I'm generally very energetic person, but I could not be in peace with myself that actually my artistic production is so slow and I could not know is this because of its nature or because of my laziness and and, and then you start to question like said like how come I have so much energy for everything else and then uh, this is so slow and I think this is why I started I mean coming into different stuff and when I speak with some friends who barely knows me and just met me and then it's like oh you do comedy you do art oh you start now with the comic strip and you have a podcast and it's like what do you don't do and I'm like well I think nothing it's just a little bit of everything to keep myself a bit occupied but I I feel it comes everything into one thing in a way but I I completely agree with you that uh, we should hold our grounds in like Sometimes I, I feel guilty uh, when you're applying for some projects and project money, which, which, which to someone might seem or a recycled idea or something, but it's actually the same project that, for example, I discovered a year ago and I did not, I had an idea two years ago. I didn't got money. So it was fermentizing for two. Then I started and I got some research grant and I did the research. Research led me to something else. And then I, of course, you need new fundings because you're just discovering that this universe is much bigger than you expected in the first place. And I think that's totally legit. And then I really felt bad in some point. Oh my God, like what if there is maybe same jury in the similar grant and they see, oh, this Mila is again applying with the same fucking project. Like when it's going to be done, you know? And, you know, you have these thoughts and I think that's natural, but of course... Uh, Every time there is a progress in something and uh, like just recycling without any progress, it's, it feels a bit numb. Um, and what I wanted to ask um, or not ask, I don't know, I lost my track of thought. But I think what you said now, it's also very great uh, terms to end. But uh, please, if you have something to add um, to this, you can yeah i would just add what you said that uh, how people respond to you like is there anything that you don't do well i have i am also <laughs> there right uh i also have a podcast yes you have a podcast oh, I, <laughs> I forgot to mention yeah yeah so um i have been doing podcasts with boyan Knezhevich since 2013 huh? it's going to be 10 years in march you have years in this kind of huh hmm? You were pioneers in this medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were the first um, <laughs> art podcast in Belgrade. And um, we were focusing mostly on female authors and uh, cultural workers uh, in Serbia and XU, and then later also Europe. And then we had a few years break. Um, we also do exhibitions, sound installations. And we started a sound database. Uh, because as we now know, I'm very much into databases and archives. <laughs> uh, 
uh, no, but this happened during Corona. Uh, and, um, and now we're starting a new season, actually. So on our 10th year anniversary, we are starting a new season of podcast. <laughs> and, Second season. <laughs> well, actually, I think it's the fourth season, but officially, but yeah. And then this all happens when I'm developing the second version of the negative poetry and another work that I'm developing with the uh, Technical University in Delft, where I'm in residence. I'm collaborating with a physicist on a setup that uh, looks into sound and vibrations in a vacuum. That's also part of this negative exploration. And then um, I'm teaching. I'm a guest teacher at Art Science. I have a course, one course that I designed. This is the output of my research, which is called Organization of Knowledge. It's practices of organizing the world, mm. mostly focusing on early modern Europe, uh, like the first encyclopedia, first uh, Wunderkammers, uh, pre-museum, or uh, uh, botanical gardens, and so forth. How we try to organize the world. Um, and this year, I actually have a second course that I'm leading. Then I'm I am a director of an artist-run space, Trixie, where I'm now sitting in my studio. It's a wow. it, it's a we have 15 studios and a gallery, and I have been the general coordinator for Trixie for the past two years during the pandemic. And now I'm leaving, but I'm still officially the chair of the board. So I'm overlooking the activities of the organization. And then I have a paying job. I work as a web designer and developer. So. Um, you still need a job? Like, first of all, you are in Netherlands and you still need a job. Yeah, dude, of course. All these other things, I mean... And I still only make a minimum, may I add. Ah, fuck this system. Fuck this shit. <laughs> I am so angry on this. Because this is not just, this is like everywhere. We just kept on a low minimum wage. And then we are like mocked at someone who lives of the someone's back and taxes, but you, you, you can, you know, the system keeps you in some kind of, you know, every, the biggest grant here in Germany, it's again like minimum wage when you split it on the 12 months, you know, but in like in six months seems a lot. <laughs> right, true. But then we shouldn't be relying on grants if we want to be making more than the minimum. Of course, but to penetrate academic system, it's also not so easy without certain, um, you know, criterias or uh, experience or age or knowledge of, in, of the language. And uh, especially, I mean, I don't know how it's in Netherlands to, to come to the to teaching positions, but in Germany, it's, uh, I would like to in one day to be sort of, of a guest professor or something like that, because I don't want to rely on, on applying for scholarships when I'm 50, you know? This makes no sense. And if I'm not making sellable works that are easy easier to be eaten by the market, then I'm nowhere, you know? I, I think you should charge people for your performances. Like everybody charges, you know, a ticket for comedy uh, evenings. Why not? They, they pay for it, unfortunately, but the hosts are getting money. And this is the system that now we are trying, or I'm actually trying to deal with or, or with myself, how to navigate this and how to go into it. I'm not someone who is so much experienced, but um, you can make also decent money and living from this. And um, 
it goes a lot of work in, in writing and doing comedy. So being unpaid, it's even more unfair than being, I feel like, I mean, it's the same model as in visual arts, um, in this uh, comedy arts, and it's um, insanely spreading or it's contagious, I feel like. I don't know where to go, wherever I want to choose, to, to flee to another field seems even less paid than where I was before. So <laughs> I'm just going in the depth of the depth, you know? And, uh, but okay. Maybe you should go then into finance or economy, you know? That's oh, where the no, money is. No, I would be dead. I would be dead soon. <laughs> soon enough. I would rather eat, be on minimum wage and live long. Ah, yes. I don't know. Let's see. It, it's a, it's a, struggle that keeps me uh, alive to try to find the meaning and the uh, money and, uh, where to how to create the meaning somewhere that can, and that meaning can generate the money um sort of yeah that's i i like that approach i guess but uh, you know this there is different types of meanings to generate but something that i guess you can live with and yeah. I, I have some friends and colleagues that are in arts and then they try to not make a deal with the devil it's stupid to say it like that but to kind of get themselves to compromise enough to feel still comfortable with producing certain types of work in a certain forms to please the market uh, hunger but still you know I don't feel so bad about myself but actually, yeah, I'm proud of what I'm doing and the way it, it turns out, you know. Still didn't come to that point, but I'm, I cannot say that I don't have a wish to sell something in my life once. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have the same. I, I don't see that my works are so, so uh, sellable. Actually, the first time ever that now I'm trying uh, a different approach is that I have a publisher for the negative Bible. So this new version software, I will translate the Bible and it will be published by uh, Unformed Informed Publisher from Rotterdam. So I'm actually going to sell. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I hope it works. I don't know. It's going to be a new thing. It was lovely to listen about your work. It's really impressive and I'm so happy uh, that we finally did this. Uh, because it was beyond my expectations how interesting it is and the way you speak about it, it's really uh, very clear. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this as well. Thank you. No, I really enjoyed our conversation and I have a feeling like we're only talking for 45 minutes, but I see that it's an hour and 45 minutes. Yes. So I don't know if we're going to make it so long, but uh, it was definitely uh, fun. It doesn't matter. I had also like uh, this. This uh, people listen. If it's interesting enough, if it went fast to us, it's gonna go fast. Uh, so I want to thank you again, and I want to thank everyone who listens to the to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, any questions, any um, anything you would like to know or ask me or Katarina, I will drop down all the links of her website. Uh, her Instagram, uh, and uh, as you know, always you can support us via Patreon page or buy us a coffee. Uh, I will also drop links for this uh, in the description. And yes, we are open for any comments or questions. And um, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. And I look forward to some replies.
Broken English.